The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Open your Bible with me, if you will, to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And in just a moment, we'll look at the last paragraph in that chapter. Before we do, let me say that I missed being with you last Sunday, but I've heard good reports on Gary Uda's ministry, and also that you had a wonderful report from Jansen Richardson and your search committee. And that next Sunday... February 1st, you have a prospective pastor. I did not recommend him, but I've enthusiastically endorsed him. I know him well, and I commend him to you as a person worthy of your consideration as your new pastor. You've heard the schedule for next weekend, and I hope you'll be uh, governed by it. I will not be here next Sunday. I will stay out of the way so you can focus everything right on him. I will be back the next Sunday, February the 8th, and that will be my last day with you. I've been fired. No. <laughs> I remember so well the, what I said at Shades Mountain, my last Sunday there. After 26 years and a few months, I said something to them I'd never been able to say before. I said, after over a quarter of a century, I can say clearly today, I have pleased everybody in this church. I pleased some of you when I came 26 years ago. Some of you I didn't please then. During the 26 years, you've been open-minded and I pleased you. And for those two that I didn't please when I came here and since I've been here, I'm pleasing you now that I'm leaving. <laughs> so finally got everybody pleased, but seriously, I have enjoyed being with you. I love you and I will pray for you. And I look forward to hearing good reports of the greatest days yet in the life of this wonderful, wonderful church. Now, I will be here February the 8th and I'm already working on a sermon for you that day. Fancy folks would call it the ministry of reciprocity. But if you don't know what that word means, here's what it's going to be about what we can expect from our new pastor and what our new pastor can expect from us. It's a two-sided thing. It's just like marriage. What can he expect out of me and what can she expect out of me? And if you don't get both sides together, you're in a heap of trouble. And the same thing is true with churches. So we look forward on February the 8th doing that. Now, some of you already have asked me, well, what's going to happen to you, Dr. Carter? Where are you going? You just going to do nothing? Well, I remember, some of you remember Dr. R.G. Lee. He was a dear friend of mine, and in his older years, he preached for us many times, and he said to me one time, he said, uh, Son, there's one thing I can't do. That's nothing. And there's one thing I can't do, and that's nothing. So on February the 15th, I began as the interim pastor at the First Baptist Church of Opelika, Alabama. Now, all of you Alabama fans, Pray for me. <laughs> and all of you Auburn fans, come see me. <laughs> but 
But seriously, they've been without a pastor since last October and are looking forward to uh, their new pastor, whatever that time comes. But until then, uh, I'll be there uh, with them. Most of you know Luke chapter 10 is the chapter that contains the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. In verses 30 through 37, Jesus told probably the second best-known story he ever told. The best-known is probably the parable of the prodigal son. But second only to that is this parable of the Good Samaritan. And right at the end of that story, when he says to that man who asked the question, go and do likewise, that is be a good neighbor, Luke records a little vignette, a little episode in the life of Jesus that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's pregnant with meaning, I think. So look with me, beginning in verse 38 of Luke chapter 10. That came to pass as they passed, that is the disciples, that he, Jesus, entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet. The word also implies both of them initially sat down before him and at his feet and heard his word. Verse 40, but Martha was cumbered about much serving, or literally she was pulled and distracted in different directions and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve you alone? Bitter therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, you're careful and troubled, or you're worried and upset about many things, but Mary has chosen that good part or the better part, and it will not be taken away from her. All my life growing up, I was taught by my parents, by teachers in school, by Sunday school teachers, to be good and to do good. Some erroneously even told me, Charles, God loves you when you do good. He doesn't love you when you do bad. Now listen to me. Don't you ever teach children that. Boys and girls, you listen to me. God loves you whether you're good or bad. And we need to say amen to that. God loves us when we're good. He loves us when we're bad, not because we're bad, but because of who He is. God's love is constant. It's not a yo-yo going up and down. But So don't teach people God loves you when you're good and He doesn't love you when you're bad. But I was taught to be good and do good. Now be all honest with me for a moment. I doubt in all of Shelby County this morning, January the 25th, 2015, there's any larger group of do-gooders anywhere in this county than right here at First Baptist Church of Pella. You agree with that? You're arrogant. No, no. <laughs> really, I realize that people who normally come to church every Sunday, you're good people. You weren't out carousing last night, not going to be doing it tomorrow night. You work hard, you pay your debts, you try to be a good person. All of us basically do that. Now, we make mistakes and we blow it sometimes. But by and large, we are good people. But I want to ask you a question. Is it ever wrong to do good? Some of you may say this is going to be the shortest sermon we ever heard. It's never wrong to do good, so bye. 
Now, hold on just a minute. Is it ever wrong to do good? I want to suggest to you that this text, these five verses, suggest to me at least, and I'm sharing with you the insight I have, that at least four times it's wrong to do good. Look at it for just a moment. This little episode between Mary and Martha. Jesus is visiting in their home in the city of Bethany, just about a mile and a half over the Mount of Olives from the capital city of Jerusalem. It was really a suburb to Jerusalem, kind of like Pelamist Birmingham. And he visited their home. Here's what happened. These two sisters welcome him into a home, which you see four times it's wrong to do good. Number one, it's wrong to do good when we do the right thing in the wrong spirit. Look at it. There was absolutely nothing wrong with what Martha did. Martha is the kind of neighbor everybody would like to have. She's a practical person. She's a doer. You know what I'm talking about? She's the kind of person that there'd be a sickness in the family and Martha would be the first one there with a baked cake or a baked a cooked meat. And she's the kind of person always seeing things to be done. <coughs> you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you have a death in the family or you have sickness and, and you get distracted by things you've got to do unexpectedly to take care of sick people or there's a death in the family. Sometimes a neighbor comes in. The beds are unmade, the floor is unswept, the food is uncooked, the dishes are unwashed. And they come in, they look around and say, anything I can do to help? And what do you say? No, everything's okay. Well, just thought I'd ask. Call if you need me. Bye. You got neighbors like that? Most of us do. Then there are other people that come in, they quietly get the floor swept, they get the dishes washed, they get the beds made, they get the food cooked, and they quietly slip out and say, I'll be back after a while. That's the kind of person Martha was, a take-charge person, a do-good person. Saw things that need to be done, and she got it done. She was a practical person. Now notice, there was not anything wrong with what Martha did. There's nothing in this passage that says she did something wrong. She didn't try to slip over the corner and smoke a cigarette and Jesus not catch her smoking. She didn't try to slip out behind the house and take a little drink of liquor and Jesus not catch her drinking. She didn't do those kind of bad things. She's doing something good. Apparently she sat down and listened to him because the Bible said, and Martha also, that had a sister called Martha who also sat at Jesus' feet. The word also implies both of them first sat down. And she's listening to Jesus teach and talk as her sister is. And suddenly it dawns upon her. There's not a thing in this house to feed this man. And so practical minded person she is, she slips back to the kitchen. Usually those homes were just one room houses. So back in the back with a little, little cook stove, <coughs> she gets back there doing good. Don't miss that. She was doing good. She was being thoughtful. Now you have to use a little bit of imagination to imagine what happened, but it's not very much imagination because of what she does. I can imagine Martha, since I've lived with three women much of my life, a wife and two daughters, 
that she got back in the kitchen, <coughs> getting that meal prepared and thinking anytime Mary's going to come in there and help. But she doesn't do it. She just hears them talking. And so she begins to slam the cabinet doors. She began to rattle the silverware. They didn't have silverware back then, but if they'd had it, she'd have rattled it. And all fine thinking that door slammed, that silverware rattled. Her mother said, oh, I need to get back and help. Not a word. She's still sitting there listening to Jesus. She can take it no longer and Martha marches in. You can almost see her in your mind with her apron on and her hands on her hips and she says, Lord, don't you care? My sister has left me to take care of everything. <coughs> Tell her to get up off her consecrated laziness and get back here and help me. Now that's a card of paraphrase, but that's about what she said. She was angry because she was doing the right thing, but she was doing it in the wrong spirit. And the same thing can happen to you and me. The best illustration I know of this among Southern Baptists, and since we're a Southern Baptist church, I can talk to us. You well remember back about 1979, 1980, of all things, Southern Baptists got in a fight over the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible. Now hear me carefully. I believe every word of this book is God's divinely inspired word. But don't ever get the idiotic idea your interpretation of this book is infallible. It's not, nor is mine. And yet people, well-meaning people said, I believe the Bible more than you believe the Bible. You don't believe it like I do. I'll beat you over the head with the Bible. Hmm. Dear friend, we laugh at that. Well, that's happened in Southern Baptist churches for about 20 or 30 years. We had arguments and fights over the Bible. You know, the truth of the matter is I sat on the sideline and watched all this going on. Most Southern Baptists that I know believe and always have believed the Bible was the inspired word of God. There's a few extremists on one end that think the King James was flung down from heaven like I read a moment ago. Now, I love the King James. You know, I read it sometime. But people, I, I actually got a scorching letter from a lady one day who visited our church on a Sunday night. And I had preached from the King James like I'm doing this morning. And she wrote a note, an ugly note, by a person who had been in church. Why in the world did you use the King James? Why didn't you use the King James? I did not use the King James. Why didn't you use the King James Version of the Bible? The divinely inspired Word of God. The only thing she didn't do was sign her name because if she had, I'd have written her a note. Dear ma'am, it's so good to have had you in our church. <laughs> I'd like to ask you a probing question. Pray tell, what did the people in 1610 do for a Bible before the King James ever got written in 1611? You hear what I'm saying? Oh, listen, I love the King James. It's dear to my heart. Many of the verses I've memorized came right out of this book right here. But don't ever get the idea. That's the only version God can bless. It's not. And yet, well-meaning people, Christian people, have actually argued and fought, divided over the inspiration of the Bible. They've done the right thing. They've done it with the wrong spirit. Now, what I'm saying to you is this. 
we can do this in many ways. You can serve God and the church, and yet you get an ugly attitude about, I'm the only one that comes faithfully to our class meeting. I'm the only one that shows up for this meeting. I'm the only one that picks up any clothes around this house. I'm the only one that carries out the garbage. I'm the only, you know what I'm talking about? You have a pity part of thinking, you're God's gift to the world and you're the only one doing anything. Hogwarts, dear friend. Now, I'm not making an excuse for laziness, but what I am condemning is a God Almighty attitude that you're right and everybody else is wrong. No, there's nobody like that, including especially your preacher. It's wrong to do good when we do the right thing like Martha did. Get a meal for Jesus, but do it with an ugly spirit, a wrong spirit. She lost her perspective. Here is Jesus sitting in her home and she loses her perspective and thinks it's more important what I can do for him than what he can do for me. Mary is sitting at his feet, listening to him. Martha's back in the back getting something done. Now, had she done that and done it with a good spirit, it had been fine, but she didn't. She came in and wanted to make Mary act like her. We'll come to that. It's wrong to do good. When you and I do the right thing in the wrong spirit, but quickly, notice the second thing here. It's wrong to do good when you and I conclude that doing good alone makes us spiritual. Now you know what I'm talking about. Some of us go to church every Sunday morning. We go to Sunday school. We come back on Sunday night when we have events here. We come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. We go to choir practice. We go to deacons meeting. We go to finance committee meeting. We are active in church. And it's easy for us to conclude that just doing this makes us spiritual. Listen. Activity is not synonymous with spirituality. I believe in activity. I try to be an active person. But that alone doesn't make us spiritual. And Martha had concluded that the most important thing was what she did, that it made her spiritual. And there are many of us who fall into that same category. You know what I'm talking about? We oftentimes feel like as long as we can show up, be there, be on time, participate, stand, sit, listen, pray. That's the main thing. No, 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 dear friend. The main thing is the transformation in your life and mine that takes place when we come to worship and we do Bible study that it transforms our lives and the way we get along with our husbands and wives and our children and our parents and our neighbors, that it makes a difference because we've been in the presence of the living God. But just activity alone, which is what Martha was doing in the back of that house, getting that meal doesn't make us spiritual. You see, if you have questions processing that, think about it for a moment. <clears throat> In the New Testament, the one group that gave Jesus more heartache and more heartache, headache and more problem than anybody else. I'm going to spell it for you. P-H-A-R-I-S-W-E-S. Say it out loud. Louder. Pharisees. Who were they? 
Never more than 6,000, we're told, by those who studied the life of the time of our Lord. They believed every word of their Old Testament book, the Torah, the law, was the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. They went to prayer time three times every day. They gave a tithe of everything they had, and they were as mean as the devil. Why? Jesus said, you bunch of snakes, how are you going to escape the damnation of hell? That's what Jesus said to them. I didn't say that. Now, who were they? They were active people who concluded that doing good alone made them spiritual when it made them ugly. Look what it did to Martha. First of all, it made her argumentative with Jesus. I don't know anybody else in the Bible that talked to Jesus like she did. Listen to it. Lord, don't you care? Can you imagine anybody speaking to Jesus like that? You almost think lightning is going to strike that home from heaven. Lord, don't you care? And there's almost a snarl in her voice. Arguing with Jesus, the Son of God. Activity, getting that meal didn't make her spiritual. It made her pugnacious, ready to fight. Lord, what's wrong with you? Tell my sister what to do. And then it made her accusative of her sister. Bitter, therefore, get up here and help me like any God-fearing, law-abiding Jewish woman would do. Now, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but basically, you're seeing and I'm seeing in Martha a reflection of the mirror of us sometime when we feel like that what we do is the most important thing. No different what you are is the most important thing. If going to church and reading your Bible and giving your tithe and saying your prayers doesn't transform the way you live and the way you think and the way you act, you're wasting your time. It's just like the Pharisees. They did all of this. Jesus called them a bunch of vipers. It's wrong to do good when I can do the right thing in the wrong spirit. It's wrong to do good when I conclude that doing good alone makes me spiritual. But thirdly, be careful. It's wrong to do good <clears throat> when the good we do, I do, becomes the norm or the standard for the good everybody else must do. You know what I'm talking about? If those words are too big for you, listen. I'm talking about people who will go along on to play God for everybody. Every church has got them. You know, well, I know what everybody else may say, but let me tell you what's right. And then they speak as if they're God Almighty. You're not, dear friend, I'm not. But sometimes we get the idea. We're going to play God for everybody. And if everybody doesn't fit our preconceived mold of what it takes to be a dedicated Christian, they're wrong. No, no, they're not wrong. They're different. You see, God didn't make everybody a Martha. And God didn't make everybody a Mary. Aren't you glad? And he, both of them are important to him. But Martha's trying to make everybody like her. And it's wrong to do good when the good we're doing becomes the standard, the bar for the good everybody else must do. I saw this so vividly several years ago. You know that Shays Mountain Church, where I was, is just above Stanford University. Hundreds of the college students still come there to worship and they come back on Wednesday night sometime. And 
I taught a Bible study on a Wednesday night, and after the service, this big old tall, six-foot-four-inch young student came down to me, and he said, you thank me for the Bible study. And he said these very words. He said, Dr. Carter, do you know what I've been doing today? And I said, no, Alan, what have you been doing? He said, I've been downtown Birmingham on 2nd Avenue and 20th Street, handing out gospel tracts, winning people to Jesus. And I said, well, Alan, that's wonderful. Then he shot me. He said, with almost anger in his voice, don't you think every dedicated Christian ought to be doing that? Well, I've never felt divinely inspired many times, but I felt divinely inspired to say something to that young student. He's a sophomore, by the way. You know what the word sophomore means? Wise fool. I didn't tell him that. I just said, Alan, I don't agree. What? And fire almost came out of his eyes. What do you mean? I said, I think everybody ought to into the study, studying the Bible, getting ready to teach it. Pah! I said, because that's what I've been doing. He got angry and walked out the church. He never said anything. He just got angry and walked away in a huff. I knew I'd offended him, but I felt he needed to hear what I said. And sure enough, about three weeks later, he came back to prayer meeting. He wasn't there the other two weeks. He came up and he said, could I see you after church? I said, Shh. I didn't know whether you're going to beat me up or what. He's a lot bigger than I was. I said, sure. We went in my study. He put his arms around me and began to cry. He said, I want to apologize. I lied to him. I said, you don't need to apologize. He really did need to. He'd been ugly. And I said, Alan, that's all right. He said, you made me so angry three weeks ago. And he said, I went back to my room fuming. And he said, I sat there just getting more and more mad. And he said, then suddenly God began to speak to me. And he said, I'd been aware. I've been here for two years now. None of the students seem to like me. None of the faculty seems to like me. And now my own preacher doesn't like me. And he said, and then God spoke to my heart. Alan, You've been trying to play God for everybody. You need to get over it. And he said, I got down on my knees and asked God to forgive me. And he said, now I'm asking you to forgive me. I said, Alan, you're forgiven. Let's get on our knees here. And we got on our knees and prayed. He prayed and I prayed. And I said, Lord, help us to recognize you haven't appointed any of us to play God for the rest of the world. And he hasn't. Now, Hear me. I like people who've got strong convictions. I'm glad he was downtown handing out gospel tracts, winning people to Jesus. Just don't say everybody's got to do that who's spiritual. That's not true. If that's what God leads you to do, fine. And being against that, it begins being like against apple pie, motherhood, and hot dogs. I'm not against any of that. But don't try to make everybody fit your little mold as what it takes to make people spiritual. It made Martha a bad person. Lastly, but most important, it's wrong to do good when doing good diverts me from doing the best. That's the greatest danger of doing good. It's wrong to do good when doing good diverts me 
prevents me, hinders me from doing the best. You see, the greatest enemy most of us have to doing the best is not the bad. I could do the bad, but my greatest enemy to doing the good, is the best is not the bad. It's good things that just nip away at us and eat away our energy and our time and our talent and our resources. Good things, but not the best things. You see, there was nothing wrong with what Martha was doing. She's getting a meal for Jesus. That's good. But the best thing would have been to sit at his feet and listen to him teach and transform her life. It's wrong to do good. But doing good diverts me from doing the best. I remember so well the night I was meeting with the search committee at Shades Mountain just before I became their pastor. We had met inside the sanctuary. The church at large was going through an evangelism training center uh, institute. And we had finished our meeting and got out of the parking lot and a taxi cab pulled up. An older gentleman got out and as soon as he got out, I recognized Dr. Gaines S. Dobbins, one of the most saintly men you would have ever met. I had his funeral when he was 91 years of age. He was professor of religious education at Southern Seminary for over a half century, probably the most influential religious educator Southern Baptists have ever had. He wrote a book one time entitled Evangelism According to Christ. He was the one who was getting out of the taxi. And he came over to these five men and me and there in his gentle way said, I, I'm so sorry I'm late getting here for the evangelism training. I've been out of town on a speaking engagement. I got into the airport in plenty of time to get here. I listened to what he said. He said, but en route from the airport, I learned the taxi driver was not a Christian. And I just had the joy of leading him to Jesus. I said, Dr. Dobbins, while the church is inside studying about how to do it, you're out on the parking lot doing it. That's the important thing. What they were doing was not bad, but the best thing was getting out there doing it. Now, what I'm saying to you is this. Going to church is important. Thank you for being here. But how long has it been since you spoke to your neighbor or your colleague at work or your friend at school who may not be a Christian and shared with them that God loves them, Jesus died for them, and you hope they will receive the gift of eternal life? Most of us know that's what ought to be done. Most of us know people who are not less Christians, and yet... We do so many good things, it takes away the time and energy to do the best. William Butler Yeats, an Irish dramatist and poet, said one time, genius, said he, is the art of learning to live with the major issues of life. The emphasis on major. So many people diddle-daddle things that don't mount to a hill of beans. You know, they just waste the time and little piddling things. Genius is the art of learning to live with the major issues of life. Doing the best is not determined by your horoscope. It's a choice that I choose. That's what Jesus said. Mary has chosen the good part and it will not be taken away from him. 
Maybe Jesus summed it all up when he said in Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Would you bow together with me for just a moment? If you, like I, struggle at times with good things diverting you from doing the best things, I hope you'll talk to the Lord about it. Right here this morning, you'll look into your heart and find out, has it ever been wrong to do good in my life? And if it has, will you ask God to lead you and guide you? If you're here today, you've never done the best thing, taking Jesus Christ as the Savior of your life. Right now, he stands at your heart's door and says, if you'll open the door, I'll save you right now, and I'll save you forever. If you're a Christian, you live in this area, but you're not active in a church, right here on the Sunday before our church calls a brand new pastor, you could come and say, I'd like to be a part of this church. We'll welcome you with arms wide open. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that applies it to our hearts. Help us to be different people because we've been to church. In Jesus' name we pray. Aaron Corm's going to come up and share with us uh, report number two from the search committee. And then Barry Cornegie, you're going to come up and say a word, and uh, then we'll introduce these folks that have come. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I just want to first say how much um, me personally and each committee member individually greatly appreciates the support and the prayers that you've had for us over this past year plus. Um, and so with that, again, I just want to reiterate, we are thrilled and 100% united in bringing you all a candidate next weekend. Um, and he will be here. Um, I'm sorry to say we can't release the name yet. He is currently serving in another church and he has asked to keep that confidential until after he comes and that way he can be the one to inform his church of what's going on. So so at this point I just kind of want to run through the events of next weekend. So first of all, um, Friday and Saturday morning the candidate will be meeting with the deacons, the staff, the finance committee, and the personnel committee. So and then on Saturday afternoon at 6 p.m. There will be a question and answer session right here in the sanctuary. And after that, there will be a social out in the gathering area. And we actually have some sign-up sheets if anybody is available to bring cookies or any kind of sweets. There's a sign-up sheet out in the gathering area. So, um, Then on Sunday, he will be preaching in two services, so just 9.15 and at 10.45. Um, and so definitely want to encourage everyone to be involved in any, in any and all of that that you're available to be involved with. Um, also, I want to remind you guys, anybody with kiddos, after the 1045 service, please pretty quickly go and grab your kids and bring them back in here. Uh, after the 1045 service, we'll have a special called business meeting that will start at about 1220. Uh, and I believe Barry Cornegay may have a couple more details on that. So thank you, thank you. And again, everybody, please come and be involved. We appreciate all of your input and support. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. What a great day to be in worship. I hope you've had a great time as I've had today in worshiping through the spoken word. 
Uh, in accordance with our constitution and the bylaws of our church, in the absence of a senior pastor, uh, your chairman of the deacons serves as moderator uh, for our special call business meetings. And it is according to our constitution and bylaws that one week before that meeting that we give you a formal announcement of that meeting. So my formal announcement to you this morning is that one week from today at 1220 in this sanctuary, we will have a special called business meeting for the purpose of affirming a vote for a call of a prospective pastor to our church. So those are the formalities. Several other things I want to make you aware of. On Saturday night, for the question and answer session here in this room, there was a question of childcare. Our deacon body doesn't know this yet, but your deacon ministry team will provide childcare for two years and below in the nursery area. Uh, we will have had our question and answer period on Friday night, so it's not required that we be in here. And look, if you've got any doubts that our guys can change diapers and take care of babies, I can do that. I got two grandbabies now, and so do some of our deacons, and they're young, young men. We can do that, so that won't be a problem. Uh, we, don't, we want you to be able to come, and I don't want you not to come because you're afraid childcare won't be provided. Now, another thing. Our deacon ministry team has been kept informed on a weekly basis or on a monthly basis of the progress of our pastor search committee. Brad Benton has been our deacon representative on that committee, and he's done a great job informing us. Our deacon ministry team has the utmost confidence in that group and the prospective pastor that they've called. I actually told Jansen Richard, who's chairman of that committee, if I never heard the guy preach, I'd vote for him now based on my confidence in that committee. Luckily, we get to hear him preach next week, and we can make that vote ourselves. Next week won't be without confusion at 1220 because everybody will be in this room. That means everybody, babies, young child, children, everybody, that's okay. We wanna be able to give our nursery workers and everybody as part of our body of Christ an opportunity to vote. So that'll be okay, it's gonna be a little noisy. And I will explain to you in great detail next week the administration of the vote for our prospective pastor. Our deacon body will administer that vote, God will preside over it, and it's gonna be okay. The votes will be cast in this room. All those votes will be collected in this room. They will be counted immediately after the vote. You have the option to leave or to stay to hear the affirmation of that vote. Uh, completely up to you. We will adjourn the business meeting after the vote is taken, and then we will have a time of fellowship. There'll be music and others while we wait. The county committee will do their best along with deacon reps and some pastoral search committee reps to count those votes and to get those back to you as quickly as possible. Our prospective candidate, who the deacon body is not aware of that name also, would like to be able to stay after the vote and hear the affirmation of that vote uh, so he can contact his prospective uh, elders and leaders in his church that he's at now and let them know uh, that he's coming as our next pastor. I have the utmost confidence next week Next week's going to be a great week. Uh, those of you that are in Sunday school at 8 o'clock, uh, you'll be moving to the 915 hour. And I would assume that since you're having Sunday school at 9.15, you will come to worship at 10.45. Then there's only a short interval wait until we have our vote at 12.20. Be praying this week, please. At the end of each service next week, there'll be a time of prayer and commitment here at the altar. We're moving our prayer time to the end of the service so you can have time to pray after our prospective pastor delivers the message. So please take time to do that and do that this week. It's going to be a great week. Let's all be united as one body of Christ and let's look forward to what God has in store for us. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.